Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi. I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glut. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show... Please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today on American Glutton, I'm talking to Melissa Kelly and Elena Burke, authors of Full, Overcoming Our Eating Disorders to Fully Live. This is a very meaningful episode for me as I have four daughters and I can't always understand the types of things they're going through. And I was really excited to talk to two gals about some of the stuff that girls are dealing with. Please enjoy. Melissa and Elena, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. <laughs> Thank Happy you. Happy to be here. Thank you guys so much for doing this. And um, this is a, a subject like, uh, you know, my perspective um, on eating disorders are, from what I experienced, is just like, I just overate and didn't move a lot. And then that has been something that I've been struggling with for the past 20 ish years. But but there is a whole host of um, other disorders that I've heard of that I have some like vague conceptions of, but no real like I haven't had a lot of these conversations. I find um, I, you know, I once uh, wrote something on Instagram and I thought it was thoughtful, but I got like people saying it was dangerous to talk about this stuff. And like, I, I really think that the way we understand is by discussing it. And, you know, obviously I wasn't writing anything to, to try to upset anybody or trigger them. Cause I'm just, I'm curious. I think it's a, a real interesting topic. Um, and so that said, please let me know if I say anything that's like not that I'm not supposed to say, you know what I mean? Like from triggering or whatever, because I right. I think in the male area uh, of weight loss, th those um, restraints are, are less, I think. Well, what's interesting to me is that we society, um, so to speak, um, has no we have no issues talking about how people should look or what, you know, what size their body should be and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. But when we try to talk about, you know, some of the behaviors that result from this type of a diet culture, you know, people are like, oh, that's dangerous. And, and it is, <laughs> I mean, the behaviors are dangerous, but we have to be able to talk about it, especially, well, just like we're, we're hopefully moving a little bit closer with mental health generally talking about it more openly. And that's critical. And one of the things that we talk about in our book is shame. And right. shame is when you are hiding something it's, it's, you know, that you believe makes you as a person 
terrible. And very often shame leads to isolation. And for someone with an eating disorder, um, it just feeds that eating disorder. So I think that we we hear you and we're careful and we were careful when we were writing the book about not being specific about some of the behaviors um, being more general, because what we're what we're aware of is that someone who is still very sick um, may look at that and think of it as an idea. Like, right. oh, I haven't tried that. I'll try that, you know, and we don't want that. So we're careful about that. Um, but we we clearly are very upfront about um, the emotions that drive it um, and also generally some of the behaviors that drive it. I, you know what? That's so fascinating. I hadn't even thought of that angle, but like with um, suicide, the press generally doesn't report specifics on suicide for that reason, because yep. there is a, a society or a social contagion that's possible. And yeah, I, I you know, I would be um, loath to the most of what I talk about is weight loss coming from a guy who was more than twice my size. Mm -hmm. And that was my struggle. So the tips and, and whatnot that I put forward generally are here's what I'm doing to try and maintain mm -hmm. my weight or reduce my weight. Um, I, I probably wouldn't, you know, if I was going to go out on a bender and have a pizza or something like that, that would not be something I would share really openly you know i would have to think about like what would the ramifications of that be i you know right. i don't want to set somebody off down a path that takes them off of whatever plan they're on so that's interesting i hadn't yeah. thought of it that way and so the way we addressed that in our in our book was to talk specifics around the issues that really fed our eating disorder and we identified 12 that were mutually relevant for both Elena and me. And again, we're very different generations. I'm 54. Elena's uh, 19. She, when we wrote the book, we were 18 and 53. So two different, very different generations, but, but concepts or issues like perfectionism, uh, shame, trauma, comparison, um, be a lady, the things that were taught me, you know, this is what it means to be a lady. Um, and there's, as I said, there's 12 of them. Um, but we talked specifically about how those those emotions and those issues really fed our eating disorder, fed the behaviors without getting too specific on the behaviors and then how we manage those today. And I think that whatever your eating disorder, um, whether it is, um, you know, related to overeating and um, or it's related to weight loss. I think that for all of those, it, there are underlying emotional issues or um, something about life that you're trying to face that you're using either your overeating or your diet um, or, you know, over exercise, whatever it is, you're using that as a really maladaptive way to address what's happening. And so if we can get to that, if we can talk through and really um, help people and help ourselves to, you know, address that, those emotions, then hopefully those behaviors don't manifest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because I was also a drug addict and that's kind of like one of the first things you have to confront when you're dealing with drugs. Like there's a very clear, like, you have to look at your life and figure out what you're avoiding. And for so long with my weight, I just tried to go like, well, I'm just going to eat less. I'm not going to think about anything else or I'm going to cut out carbs or I'm going to do whatever it is. Pick one thing. I'm not going to change my life at all or really look internally and get into the, the nuts and bolts of what what's causing me to do this. But it really wasn't turning around until I did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, for the longest time, I thought my struggle was directly about the food or about my appearance. And it took me a long time to realize that it, it was never about the food. It was never about wanting to look thin. Um, it was all of these underlying issues. And I, I think they're universal. Um, you know, whether it's, anorexia, binge eating, drug addiction, like these are all things that people go through. And there's often what they call comorbidity, which is where there's two issues, right? So you mm -hmm. had the, um, you know, alcoholism or, you know, drug addiction and the eating, you know, disordered eating. Um, 
often, and this is something that both Alina and I experience, this anxiety goes with the eating disorder or depression and eating disorder or both and the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So, and sometimes the eating disorder is a manifestation of the anxiety or the depression. So again, that it, it shows, what it shows is that these are complex things. And sometimes trying to figure out exactly what is going on from a, um, you know, a diagnosis perspective, it can, it can kind of get you off track when really what we need to figure out how to do is to manage life um, in a way that's very adaptive and healthy and, and try to stay from the, away from these things that we've learned make us feel good in the moment, but that ultimately are destroying our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Managing life. That's a wild one too, because even when I would go like th there would be times, certainly times where I would try to not deal with life at all and go like, I'm just going to change one aspect of my eating and that's the solution. And I believed that would work and it, it really never did. And then there were other times where I would try to manage life all in a day. Like today I'm going to manage my entire life. Now, if I look at my life today, versus my life 20 years ago. It's nothing. There's no comparison. So much has changed. It's radically different. And there are uh, many safeguards built into my life today that that keep me on track. Yep. Um, but when I tried to put in all those safeguards in a day or in a weekend, it would all it would all fail every time. And what I realized was that it really took time to learn because I didn't know what they would all be. You know, I didn't know what this radical change would be. It was like a, a path. And as I went down the path, it was like, oh, I can get this safeguard and this safeguard and I can radically change my life over time. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I do see uh, many instances of people struggling with this idea that they can change one thing and, and will have this profound effect, or they can change everything overnight. And then both of those things seem to be fail points. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I talk about this in the book, but I think we live in what I call an era of quick fixes. Um, I grew up in the early two thousands and everything I ever need, I can have in a very short amount of time. Like if I, we don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore. Um, so I think living in this era is makes recovering from issues like an eating disorder so much harder because we want those quick fixes. And I, I relate to you a lot. I used to believe that, you know, if I go on this like 30 day cleanse or if I do the 75 hard challenge, like that's it. Like I will be enough. My life will be complete. Um, but it's, it's never the case. There's never one, a quick fix. Yeah. And one of the things I actually, I think I put this quote in the bill in, in the book, I don't remember which section it's in, but, um, it is, um, the, the cup you choose to fill has no bottom. Right. And actually the soothsayer in Kung Fu Panda 2 said that. So <laughs> there's awesome. a sage for you. Is it attributed um, to him in the book? It is. It's attributed awesome. to him in the book. Yeah, but cool. it's true. If you think about like, you know, oh, okay, all I have to do is this 30 day cleanse. And then the 30 day cleanse comes and you still don't feel good. And you, that means, you don't, you know, now you're looking at your body image is no better or you failed at the 30 day cleanse. And so now you're putting yourself, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. And we're constantly running toward that next thing that's going to make us enough. And that is the cup that has no bottom. And, and that's actually kind of, I would say, if I, if I had a memoir, uh, like that was about my whole life, I would say that the, the primary underlying struggle for me was this, is this constant struggle to be enough. And the thing is that that is constantly changing that goal, that target constantly changes. And so much of that has to do with diet culture um, and that which is going on around us. And so, um, again, that's, I think, why uh, we try to really hit hard that it's really not about the food. It's about all of these things that ultimately are our quest to get to this 
plateau of happiness to this place of self-satisfaction, but then you get there and you're like, oh, but you're not supposed to be satisfied because then you'll never grow. I'm supposed to be growing. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just impossible, right? Like, and so when, when you have an addiction or you have a disordered eating or something like this, um, that is a big trap. Um, and the more you can kind of stay away from the all or nothings, the better you are. That said, those of us that have addictions or, or um, including eating disordered behavior, um, all or nothing is really tough or is, is kind of the way we go. Moderation is tough. So it's a, it's, it's a big so thing. Tough. To yeah. And, and I, I've talked about this before, but with food, it's almost becomes tougher simply because it's, it can't be all or nothing, right? Either yes. end of that extreme is death, you know? Yes, and know so it's yeah. like so complicated, right? We live in a time where it's, it's like nobody's, um, at least in America, it's very rare to see people malnourished to the point of starvation. Uh, that's not that's not being done to themselves. Right, right, right. Exactly. You know, I was in the hospital. Um, so I was hospitalized three times. I grew up in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, and I was hospitalized three times during that time. So this was a very different era, right, than where we are now. And and one of the things you note in the book is that you'll notice is that um, there are some things about diet culture that have changed dramatically, like this, all this social media and the way it's in your face all the time and the way we talk about um, appearance and that, you know, the, the some things have changed and some things have stayed the same. But as, as, you know, the first time I was in the hospital, it was 1984. And we didn't know as much about eating disorders as we do now. And one of the things I remember saying is that, well, I wish it was like alcoholism. Like everybody wanted to kind of treat it like alcoholism. So it's a 28-day program. Um, you know, you're going to learn to stop doing that and do something else instead of your addiction, you know, which was either not eating over exercising, binging and purging, you know, whatever your flavor was. And, um, you know, but eating was not something that we could just stop doing. And I, that's what I wanted. I wanted so much to not have to eat. If I could just remove this part of my life, that then everything would be great. And I know, Elena, your, your jealousy of Paco, <laughs> you know, the, that you could talk about that. Yeah, I have this 10 pound dog. His name is Paco. You might even hear him barking, but um, he's a Chihuahua, so a Chihuahua wiener dog mix. Um, so he's just like this little scraggly, funny dog. Um, and when I was struggling with anorexia, I remember being so jealous of my dog Paco because he could live and be healthy off of one bowl of kibble a day. And I was so jealous. And I also, I remember thinking like, I wish my family didn't have enough money for all of these groceries which is such a twisted way of thinking. Um, but it was my reality. And I just, I wished that we were poor so that I wouldn't have all this access to food that was stressing me the hell out. Um, but yeah, it's just crazy what the mind will come up with when you're, when you're depriving yourself. Yeah. Our solutions, you know, that's another thing that I, I recall vividly going through this a lot on my own. Um, when I try to do it by myself, like as a person in a vacuum, not talking to somebody else and not having some plan or nothing external, it's just all in my head. My solutions were at times completely insane. And I find that it's super helpful to have an external source to at the bare minimum talk to about this. Um, just just to take my thoughts out and hear them go through the filter of another person and come back at me with like, hey, dude, that's a little wacky. I don't know if that's going to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think one of the, you know, we're, we're often asked, well, how did you get over it? And it's like, uh, right. <laughs> like, hmm. but one thing that we say is that, you know, we finally found something about life. Um, or something that we wanted to do that was more important than being sick and we couldn't have both. And one of the things that you just described is that when you tried to do it all yourself, it, you weren't successful. And I think that part of the human condition, and we do talk about you know, Mas Maslow's hierarchy of needs, part of that the human condition is that need for connection. So you get the you know basics down, but we want connection. And the, the one of the 
biggest components of my uh, healing. And I was, um, I was hospitalized three times um, between the ages 16 and 22, and then um, struggled again in my thirties. But I, group therapy, that connection with other people who were going through this. And, you know, so often you're at this place, once you start going down this terrible darkness of an eating disorder, you isolate, you continue to isolate, you feel like you are the only one, all you're seeing is beautiful people that are thin and, you know, everything that you're not. And that, that group therapy, that connection to others helped pull me out of that. And to understand that, first of all, people see me differently than I see myself. Secondly, other people are going through the same thing. And this is really important. I could help them. as much as they could help me. And that knowing that you have value and purpose and you have something to offer other people, there's the little light, a little crack of light that starts to come in. So I think that um, community connection and and connecting to others is just a really big part of healing. Yeah. And I think, I think in this area, anytime I've seen people who have overcome stuff like this and in, in the, in the various aspects of it, whether it be through food or, or substances um, being of service to others seems to be a very helpful way to stay on track. You know, Uh, that's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah, It kind of reminds me. um, There was this exercise that my therapist would give me uh, when I was really struggling with negative self-talk you know, like standing in the mirror, telling, telling myself, like, I am too big. Uh, I have too much fat on my belly. She would be like, okay, um, next time you have those thoughts, I want you to write it down. And then I want you to go find somebody and say those things to their face. Whoa. Um, and I, I couldn't do it. Of course not. Like I couldn't go up to my brother and be like, you can't eat today. You're a fat pig. Like, <laughs> but that's what I was telling myself. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that's another aspect of the connection, like treating yourself as a friend um, and realizing that, would you really say those things to a friend? I don't, right. I sure hope not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I it, it's very difficult for me still to this day. Sometimes, you know, I wake up and I look in the mirror and I'm really disappointed with what I see and I will not leave until I can find one thing about myself that isn't, awful right and then i can build the foundation on there for for the rest of the day but it's like truly work you know what i mean it's not something that even after years has just become innate it's like oh i have to do this or i'm gonna have a really bad day so i think it's really important that people understand that once you're healed it doesn't mean that you don't have any of those thoughts because i think that I know I thought that that was what was going to happen is that I was going to hit this healthy plateau then that I never was like bothered by negative self-image or struggled with what I was going to eat or, you know, anything like that. And, and, and I think it kept me from getting, it was one of the things that kept me from getting better at first because I was perfectionist, right? All or nothing. I can't do this. Like I, I can't do this. And I, we deal with these thoughts, at least I do, um, you know, every single day, some days it's just a little fleeting thing. And then other days it's freaking work. But if you, if you realize and accept that the illness is not in the thoughts appearing, it is in how Mm -hmm. you, how you respond to it. It's whether or not you grab onto that thought and go down that dark hole, or you make yourself stand in that mirror and decide that you're worth having a happy, good day. And that I think is an important part of recovery. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, whether you act on it or not is what makes a difference. Right. A hundred percent. But I think that the point you were making is so vital because for all of these things, and even me at times in sobriety, I really was waiting for that moment when booze and drugs didn't matter anymore. And I, and I, and I thought it would be like a magical click, you know, like uh, you yep. hear about like Bodhi sitting under the, or Siddhartha or somebody <laughs> right. sitting under the Siddhartha tree. Siddhartha sitting achieving, under the Bodhi tree. <laughs> yeah. Sitting yeah. under the tree and achieving enlightenment. I'm like, where's enlightenment? I've <laughs> lost the weight. It's when does this happen? When do I become normal? You know, this word quote unquote normal, which I think is such a mean thing to pin on to people, right? Who's normal? 
you know, yeah. is there, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody on Instagram who looks great and is like, really like I'm normal and everybody should, uh, you know, aspire to be like me, but who the fuck wants to be like that? Yeah. Well, not only that, we say normal isn't enough. I mean, I will never forget being at the office one day and a friend of mine was just devastated. A coworker was devastated because she'd just gotten back from her kid's parent teacher conference and was told he was average. And she's just, <laughs> she was devastated. She's like, he's average. Right. Average. And I was like, oh my goodness, do you understand what that means? Right. Like, you know, I mean, if, if there wasn't normal, it would be that average thing, but no one wants that. Right. We want, we want our kids to be exceptional. We want ourselves to be exceptional. So it's really worth taking a look as when we're having those negative day, those days where you're looking in the mirror and you're hating what you see. And we all have them where you have, whether you have eating disorders or not, we mm-hmm. all have them. Um, and, and thinking about like, what is it that makes me think this? Like there is, we have a ridiculous standard that we move every time people get close to it. Every time the average person gets close to beautiful by, you know, last decade's standards, it's something completely different. You know, your thin lips are now supposed to be fat, chunky, you know, bubbly, blowy lips, go spend money on that. You know, the, the flat bottom was good. And now your people are spending money to pet it. Like, so if you remind yourself that this this, the stuff that's crossing your mind was never your idea to begin with. You just bought into it. It, it, it was repeated enough that you believed it and every, pretty much everyone else too. And that you don't have to, because yeah. it's going to change next year anyway. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so. I remember my, my mother was this way and my, and my wife and I grew up in this generation where women trim their eyebrows, they pluck their eyebrows and and my kids, if you got anywhere near them with tweezers, Mm -hmm. they would, they would like freak out. If you know, the idea of them making their eyebrows smaller is atrocious. And this (laughs) happened before my eyes, right? This was like in the course of a couple of years, big, dark eyebrows became super in and like, there's you can't control for that. You know what I mean? That, that there's no way that you can guess that that's going to be the thing and that you're going to fit in with your eyebrows. Right. You know what I mean? I, I remember as a kid, I faced a lot of these contradictions. Um, I grew up with an older brother, Nathan, and I I really like idolized him. Uh, he was kind of like my protector um, and I loved him. But I I would wear his hand me down clothes. And, um, I wanted to be in all the sports just like Nathan. And I wanted to be strong just like Nathan. Um, and I remember one day at school, my classmates, it was a a couple boys were like, Oh, like, why do you, why do you dress like a boy? And I was like, Oh shit. Like, Oh, Oh my goodness. Like, this isn't cool. Um, so the next day was picture day and I came to school in, a purple shirt and I wore like some comfy capris, but they were kind of girly. And I really planned it out. I was like, today is the day I'm going to be girly and the boys are going to like it. Um, and I came to school and they made faces like, why are you dressed girly? So it was just, I was so confused. I'm like, what do you people want from me? Like what is finally going to be enough? Um, so yeah, I had those messages for a long time. Yeah. I think the contradictions you you bring up such a great point, Elena, about just generally the contradictions and one of the, we probably the chapter that, that where that really is most evident is um, the one we call be a lady where (laughs) you go through, you know, like all of the, um, you know, shoulds that women are, are told, you know, be thin and delicate and feminine, but be strong and independent and able to do it all. And, you know, like be a, you know, you can't like be a working mom because you cannot, you know, you got to be out in the the real world and, you know, making a buck, but then your kids are in daycare and then, Oh, but if you're a stay at home mom, well, then you're not contributing to society and you're indulged and you're privileged. And, you know, we, at the end, like of, of my section of the chapter, the way we've laid out the book is for each topic. So let's say be a lady, 
Elena first talks about, and I think she shares the story, one of the stories she shares is what she just did, talks about that, how it affected her, and then how she, you know, manages through that stuff now. And I, I did the same thing. I share, you know, a few stories. And then at the end, I do the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and I do every decade and say, you know, and have like just like kind of a running sentences, of, a paragraph of sentences of all the musts. And it's really interesting to see how that changed, like to the opposite of what they were telling me in the 70s. But within each decade, decade there are also contradictions. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that really trips people up, um, trips everyone up when you're being told two opposite things, um, even if it's not direct, right? Like we're, we're taught to be, or uh, we're, we're supposed to be thin and dainty and beautiful, but, you know, except for your butt now, like, let's make sure that, that that's really big and strong and athletic. And we want to be healthy and, and strong, but you don't want to have too many muscles because then you might look like a boy, you know, just those contradictions remain. Um, and I think the more often we're able to just identify, oh, there's one, that's a contradiction. I've just grabbed onto something that has the equal opposite that people are also saying. So maybe I could just let go of both. And but it takes intention and it takes a lot of practice. It, it, it is so much more complicated for gals, I think, because like the messaging to me about what masculinity is and 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 not that not that it has changed much, but there's been more like highlights on like what aspects of masculinity are socially unacceptable now that were maybe more accepted 20 years ago or something, which is all fine with me because I never thought that that stuff was cool. Anyway, I have four daughters and I do see the messaging towards them. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Changes really kind of quickly. I have... My my oldest is 26. She now has a daughter. So I'm a grandfather of a girl. Um, and then my youngest is 15. And the difference between those two generations from the oldest to the youngest is stark. It's so, so different. And I'm just wondering how the messaging for girls gets so radically shifted. Not that it was perfect 30 years ago, but it wasn't <laughs> but the, right. Exactly. But the changes seem almost confusing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still only a teenager, but I feel like I've experienced so many different years where there were ideal bodies that look nothing alike Right. And it's just so impossible to keep up with. But yeah. And I think that one of the things I think both of us say this um, and and I know we've talked about it is that um, (laughs) what may feel ironic is that becoming smaller actually became not about being beautiful and for other people noticing us and, you know, like wanting to be with us, it actually for both of us became um, the the driver for being smaller and smaller was to disappear, was to not stand out. It was basically a, this was exit stage left from all of it because it doesn't make sense to me. I can't do it. I keep trying. I'm a perfectionist. I keep trying and I can't get there. And I 
you know, I just want to take up less space and not be noticed. And I think that's something that surprises people that they, they sometimes see an eating disorder, um, as a, you know, an act of vanity. Um, and in fact, people oh, more often than not will say, I just wish I had a little bit of anorexia and, and I get it. I know what they're saying. They just wish they were too thin. I mean, but think about that. Why are we wanting to be too thin, you know, but it's not, it's never, it's not even, a, we say it's not about the food. It's also not about the vanity. It is, yeah. it is more often that by the time you get to that point, you just don't want to be noticed because you can't do it or you think you can't do it. Yeah. I'm definitely a person who had that thought, maybe even said those words out loud, out loud at times in my life when I was uh, much larger than I was. But I, I will say that I shared very much this idea of being unnoticed and invisible and small and everything was built around camouflaging myself and not standing out and not drawing attention to myself. And, and all the while I'm becoming larger and larger and impossible to not notice. Right. Because I take up more physical space than anyone else. Um, but that feeling of wanting to be insignificant and wanting to disappear, yeah. it's so it's like the worst, the worst thing it's for me, it was all like, I think fear-based. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I start my story in the book with basically where my story started, at least as, as far back as I can remember, was being six years old, first grade, standing in the, my parents' full length, looking in the full length mirror. I remember Gilligan's Island was on the little black and white TV, you know, on the other side of the bed. And I'm standing there, my little Catholic girl school uniform. And I say, say to myself, oh no, I'm big. I'm big. And I was terrified. I'm big and not, and people are going to notice me and I'm not safe. Like I thought that if I took up too much space or if I was, if I stood out, if I lived loud, right, that I would be unsafe. And I mean, I was six years old. Now, it was also the 70s at this point where diet pills and I mean, like everything you saw, everything was, you know, regular network television and commercials were so much about diet and diet pills and laxatives being used as weight loss. I mean, it was crazy time. And I soaked it right up. I mean, I soaked that right up. And at six years old, I equated big and my definition of big was distorted for sure. I was a very small, small girl. Um, but I equated big with unsafe. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, people are like, Oh, what do you think? What happened to you? Like nothing. Like I did not, I had a good childhood by all, you know, accounts. I had, I I cannot point to some terrible. Now there was certainly trauma later in life that definitely fed the eating disorder and kind of led to a big relapse in my thirties. Um, but at six, there wasn't. It was that I was taking all this in and realizing, oh, there's a way to be lovable. And that is to not be big because yeah. then, you know, you're not safe, that people won't love you. You know, they might hurt you. And so I think that is um, it, it's so much of it has to do with diet culture and how sensitive people are to it. It's hard not to be sensitive to it, um, but some people are more sensitive than others, too. Yeah. Do you, do you have any advice? Because I, I think I, I totally appreciate what you're saying. And I think for parents, there's a lot of um, guilt that they can take on when, you know, by all accounts, it, you know, it's hard. Like for me, having been um, being an addict and having weight issues, I had decided very early on, like there was going to be no black and white lines in my house about drugs and alcohol and about food. I didn't want to put restrictions on my kids because I didn't want to participate in the way that I felt um, was detrimental to me as a kid. Um, like when I had a drug problem, I could not talk to my parents about it because they, there was never alcohol or drugs in our house. So I just felt it was so taboo. So for, for my kids, I, I wanted to be very open. And then I had a a kid with type one diabetes. My 17 year old daughter has type one and she got it when she was four. And so I was confronted with this situation where I wanted to never restrict anything from them and have open conversations and talk about stuff. And suddenly she's four and I've got to say like, I'm sorry, you can't have 
birthday cake. I, I don't know how to calculate the carbohydrates and give you a shot for that. Right. <sighs> and it became this thing that I have felt guilty about for years and years and years. The one thing I didn't want to do. And I realize that's my baggage to carry. I'm not putting that on her. But do you have advice for parents who start to recognize these things? Uh, what would you suggest they do? Yeah. Well, as a kid, I I never blamed my parents. Certainly not. Um, and my mom was really confused on like, why, why was this happening to me? And because she is, she's a stay at home mom. And um, she's like, gosh, I was around you 24 seven. And I, I still couldn't protect you enough from this terrible thing. And I, I had to tell her like, mom, you, you did your very best in it. Like there's, there comes a point where you couldn't have done anything really to prevent this. Um, so I think just like parents should give themselves grace and just focus on things that they can control, like, um, checking in on their kids, you know, like I loved when I would come home from school and my mom would ask me rather than like, how was your day? And I'd be like, good. And then just run up to my room. I really liked when she would ask me, what made you smile today? Or did you do anything that made you laugh really hard today? Um, so those little things, like I think parents can control those, but just giving themselves grace. Yeah. I was one of six kids or am one of six kids. And, you know, I was the only one with an eating disorder. So, and my mom carried a lot of guilt and she, but then she also at the same time was like, well, the rest of my kids don't have this. I mean, you all grew up in the same house. And so I think it's pretty common for parents to feel guilty, um, especially when there's mental health, because we don't as a society think of mental health as just health it's like ooh, it's mental health so that just must be that mean that someone screwed up someone around you screwed up you screwed up or you just are screwed up and so i think that the parents um and, and i will also say i've got two children and i was terrified to have a girl because i did not want her to grow up like me i was terrified of that and i have i have a girl um i have, I have two girls um so i um what I would say is, you know, even as someone who has been like, oh, trying really hard to fix all that, my children don't have eating disorders, but they deal with the body image. They have days where they're like, mom, I'm just, I'm really having a hard time with food lately, or I'm just not feeling good about this or that. And I'm like, oh, you know, like it's because of me. It's because I have this and they know it, or they, they can feel those days when I'm having trouble and now it's affecting them. And you know what? Here's the thing. I'm sure that my mom said some things she shouldn't have said. Um, and I am sure that I have said things that I shouldn't have said, or I have skipped a meal in front of them, or I've eaten something totally different than what I'm feeding them. I mean, there are certainly things that can maybe contribute or add on, but the parents are not the source of this. Um, you know, my parents were not the source of what happened to me. I'm not the source of the struggle my kids are having. And honestly, I'm not sure even if we could pinpoint it to one thing, what would that matter at this point? Like the ship has sailed. I mean, they are so far beyond that one thing at this point that, you know, it's a daily thing and everything, you know, there are triggers that are coming from everywhere. So I think that the best thing that parents can do if they identify, if they notice that, okay, this doesn't seem right. And there's a couple of things you can look for wearing really, the kids are wearing really baggy clothes um, to hide their bodies. They're obsessed with food. They're cooking it constantly. They want to go to the store, but they're not necessarily eating it where they're eating a whole lot of it. And how is it that I've seen them eating so much so often and they are the same size. And, but I can't really tell because she's wearing a, you know, three X sweatshirt and she's, you know, 14 and little. So, you know, there are things you can kind of look like, look at isolation is another one. Um, and, and I think the best thing that you can do is, you know, find the resources. We always say get medical help first um, it, and finding the different resources that can, that your child can then engage in because you can't do this for them. Right. You cannot go out and learn all about this and fix your kid. They mm -hmm. have to go through this and it's a sucky journey to watch. But um, doesn't it seem like such a, a standard reaction from a parent to oh, dive into sure. books, to read all of it and to think, I know all about this <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, yes. Well, yeah. well, we wrote a book so the parents could know more about it. And right. we definitely, right. We definitely want them to do what they can and learn. And it, it really is helpful to understand the thinking that's going on inside because it is an illogical disorder. You can look at somebody who is literally killing themselves so, so crazy thin, who thinks they're fat, who sees fat when they look in the mirror. There is no logic to this. So understanding as much as you can is certainly helpful. Um, I think that the book that we wrote is really helpful and have got we've gotten that feedback too to people that love someone who has this because one when you when you hear our stories. And when we talk about it, we don't just say what happened. We talk about what drove it, like what was going through our heads. And, you know, that's hard to hear sometimes, but it does make you understand a little bit better. So I think understanding as much as you can, um, but most of all, like getting some sort of help from a professional, a dietitian, the pediatrician, you know, somebody that specializes in eating disorders, just take one step, but turn it over to a professional because the parent is just not going to be able to, to fix it. And give yeah. yourself grace. I mean, Elena mentioned about, you know, people who are sick, we, we need to give ourselves grace when we're, um, when we're struggling, when we're not doing well. Um, parents need to do that for themselves too, because it's, it's just not going to help. Um, right. It doesn't help your kid if you're just over there feeling guilty and or defensive, thinking yeah. that, you know, that you want to justify everything you've ever said or done that could could have maybe, you know, contributed. Yeah, I also think that the I, I think it's very helpful to you know relate like my mom used to go to Al-Anon meetings to try and understand what was happening with me because she had no she just didn't understand. Right. Like what's what's this guy going through? But uh, I think there's a, a a natural tendency to want to go like, well, now that I kind of understand or I've read this book, now I'm going to fix you. And that I'm weary of people having as a solution also, because and and I don't know, maybe you have some good advice for this, but I know that for me with both drugs and alcohol and uh, food, I never, I didn't change until I decided to change. And now it might've been numerous conversations that were had with me that led up to a foundation where I felt I could change. That's possible. But I, I saw my parents feel that they'd failed so many times Um and I, I utterly empathize with them, but there was just there was just no changing at that point. No matter, you know, my friends had interventions and all these people love me and they're sitting around crying and telling me they're worried for my life and please change. And, you know, I say, OK, I will with no absolutely no real intention to change. Um, and I, I worry for parents who who want you to speak to their daughter or something like that to try and elicit a change. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, gosh, you should see the stack of books my mom still has on, you know, books about eating disorders, anxiety, depression. Um, but at the end of the day, like no matter how many books she read, like it was up to me and that sucks. Like it's for rough. Her, yeah. Yeah. That sucks because there's only so much she could do. Like going to my dietitian and my therapist at first, it was not my choice. Like I was so against it and like, yeah, she had that intervention. Like luckily at the time I was still a minor, so she could like make me go to these appointments. Um, but there wasn't going to be a change until I decided that I wanted to change. I think um, knowledge is super important. I think reading all those books is super important. What's what's even more important is understanding that 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 is, you know, if it's a you know, if it's a lap around the track, that's going to get you the first, you know, 200 yards. It right. does not get you around the track. I mean, because if it did, people wouldn't smoke cigarettes. Yeah. I mean, we have known, we have had data on cigarettes and what it does to you for decades. And then the problem is not that people don't know it. It's it's other things that are driving their addiction and their choice to continue to do it. And, you know, I'm not picking on cigarette smokers. I'm just, I think it's a really sure. good example around how we, I do think, but if they didn't know that, they, there probably would never be a time that they tried at least to get off of it, you know? So I think that the knowledge is critically important. And the more you can understand what's behind um, the behavior, the better. 
but you are not going to be able to apply that knowledge as a band-aid. You are not going to be able to fix the other person or even yourself. You, like understanding it did not fix me. Like it, it, it was the, um, first of all, it wasn't, it didn't happen just one day. It was, you know, a lot of different things that finally came together and slowly, but surely I let go. And yeah. I think that it's all these little micro letting go, you know, moments that eventually you go, oh, you know what? I, I haven't done that. And, you know, it's been, I think I'm past that now, you know? So I, I think the knowledge is important. I do encourage the books. I read them. I am a like yeah. a junkie for personal development. I listen to podcasts and books and I, I mean, you should, it's ridiculous, but <laughs> But I, because I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I think it's, I want to know all the ways people do do life. It really helps me and, and I'm fascinated by it. But I'll be damned if I can, you know, then fix, you know, have perfect children or or be perfect myself. It just, it doesn't, doesn't equate that way. Yeah. I, I okay. I, I, here's, a, here's another thing to talk about, especially since uh, we, we have somebody who's not, who's of a different generation, right? I mean, this is awesome. I, even prior to the internet and all of that wanted stuff immediately thought mm -hmm. that I could handle my entire life and diet and sobriety in a day. How, how do you, how do you, or what do you recommend for a, a day and age where you literally can, like you said, you don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore. That was not true when I was a kid, but with people who want, who want everything even more immediately, who want it in the form of a tweet, right? A tweet should 250 characters should break me out of this terrible existence I've created for myself. How do we get through that? This generation where immediacy has is on, you know, hyperdrive. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant question. Um, and I wish I had a super brilliant answer. No, but it's just a discussion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that navigating that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I mean, looking at your life as a whole, and I like to think about how I can make, say, exercise, for example, rather than having it be a quick fix for my body and like doing something for 30 days and then being done. I like to think about like my whole life. Like um, I think about myself at 90 years old. OK. And like I still want to be able to walk around and, you know, like my body is going to decay and I'm going to age, but like, what can I do right now to make my lifelong journey like a healthy one? Um, so that's how I think about exercise. That's just an example. Like it's not for me right now, it's for my life and how can it serve me when I'm 90? Um, so I don't know if that 
that makes sense. No, that's beautiful. That's amazing because that that really does do away with this thing of like a, a finish line, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. if the but if the finish line is your whole life, then that's a beautiful finish line. But I think that's super important because the finish lines have never worked for me. And every time I've ever gotten to a finish line, then and there was nothing beyond that, I regressed every single time. And so I think yes, that's a beautiful yes. analogy. That's and I think that's super helpful. And I think that if people struggling with anything treated it like a lifelong pursuit, even if in 20 years, they no longer were thinking about it, but they were treating it that way in the beginning. I think people would be better off uh, on average. Yeah. Ever since I've had that approach, like I have that approach with my diet too. Like, um, but back to exercise, like when I think this way as a lifelong journey, like I'm able to notice the little victories way more clearly. Like, um, I don't know, the other day I got my first chin up. Amazing. And I wasn't, I honestly was, I didn't set that goal. I just was like, I'm just going to practice these every once in a while. Cause it's something I want to do eventually. And I did it. And I was like, Oh shit. Like this is, this is what happens when I'm not obsessing over these finish lines. Yeah. And, and like to, to that example, I've had that as a goal and then I did a chin up and then I, and then I didn't do another one for five years and couldn't do one right. the next time I tried to do it. And so right. I think that that's, I think that's a, a really rational way of, of, of planning out a change is by not putting these hard line goals, like 10 pounds, right? I've heard from many people very recently, I want to lose 10 pounds. And I'm like, 10 pounds, come on, dude, let's at least get it to like a hundred pounds. Like before we're going to take this really seriously, I'm mostly kidding, but, but like 10 pounds, just like, you know, knock, knock an apple out of your diet every day and you'll lose 10 pounds in no time. But if you change in a way that it facilitates your overall life and whatever, you know, goal is in there will happen along the way. I think that's a much better path. I do too. And I think it's, it's basically a, um, almost a commitment to lifelong growth and learning. So I remember when I was in the hospital, there was a pregnant woman in there with me and I was like, okay, no. I am going to get this figured out because I am not going to be a pregnant woman dealing with this or a mom dealing with this. And so in a way it was kind of motivating. It did make me go, okay, mm -mm, this is, I am, I need to focus here. And so it did. Now the thing you got to be careful about is thinking that like, you're not going to be learning forever because, you know, I was a pregnant woman and I wasn't, you know, didn't have an eating disorder when I was pregnant. Um, but there were other things I was learning, you know, I was still dealing with depression and anxiety and, you know, whatever, you know, the, the flavor of the day was, I think it's important to understand. And it's, it, we've talked a lot about kind of that plateau, right? Like we just want to get there, whether it's with the weight or money or marital status, or, you know, the degree, you know, we just want to get to that thing. Cause we think it's just going to be easier. And I think it, it is in a way, but like the sooner that you kind of accept that it is just a lifetime of this, you know, you're not going to learn everything in your teens and twenties so that you have this really great life for the rest of your life. I mean, hopefully, but probably not. I mean, there's right. probably going to be some things that come your way that you would not have, you know, written as part of your story. So that commitment to lifelong learning and shifting when you need to shift because what's working for Elena right now may not work for her when she's 30 and has, you know, three kids or, and what worked for me, you know, I, I actually, now that my kids are grown, I have things that I can do differently that I would not have been able to do that would not have um, been an option for me um, when my kids were little. So I just think that, that, um, that is a very wise statement, Elena, about like looking at the lifetime and thinking beyond just the moment, um, but also realizing that the lifetime is going to be filled with continuing to learn um, and to grow so that you can adapt. Yeah. yeah. I used to get so... I used to find, you know, my parents were like kind of hippies. And then I would associate all these words with hippie stuff, like lifestyle change always was like a hippie word. And I'd mm -hmm. be like, no, I'm a dude and I don't have to do lifestyle change. I just don't have to eat carbs or something like that. Right. Yeah. And then you like 
keep failing at just not eating carbs or like hitting weight loss plateaus. And you're like, it's not working anymore. What's wrong with me? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you achieve lifestyle change and you're like, oh, lifestyle change is where it's at, you know, like, <laughs> it's cool. you know, and it's it's uh, it's it's wild to watch that happen within myself, you know, and to to realize, well, they had a point. It's very hard sometimes to understand what it means when you're outside of it. Right. Like, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of personal responsibility. But you can't just say be personally responsible to somebody who who's who's utterly not within that. Right. I, I don't think it'll work. I don't think it's helpful at all to just say do better, lose weight, don't eat less, what whatever, eat more. Stop starving yourself. Stop starving yourself. That that's so counterproductive, I think, you know. And then you get there and you're like, oh, it, it really is a lot of work. And um, but that work took time to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have to peel back the onion layers always. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Guys, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really thank appreciate you. you having it with me. Yeah, this thank was great. So thank much. you so much. And now for the Q&A. Today's question comes from Amer. I hope I'm saying that right. It's A-M-E-R. Amer. Sounds right. Hi, okay. Amer. He says, hey, Ethan, love the show. You are an inspiration and have a way of relaying your experience in a super relatable way. I've struggled with my weight since childhood as well with drugs and alcohol. I've been sober for almost nine years, have worked a 12-step program, and continue to go to meetings. I've dabbled in OA too, but it seems to still be having issues getting my food issues under control. What gives? Do you have any thoughts on the 12 steps and food issues? Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on staying sober for that long, Amr. That's no small feat. Um, I do think there are a lot of uh, corollaries that can be applied from sobriety to uh, eating disorders or eating issues. Um, so I do think that that mindset is correct, is useful, can be useful for some people. I don't go to OA, but I do find a lot of similarities with my behavior around food and certain ways I have to comport myself in order to deal with food. Um, so I don't have a good like, you should do blah. But I, but I will say like, as a sober person, I would be thinking about it in a very similar way. That doesn't mean it has to be 12 steps. Um, uh, because if you're running into issues with that, maybe that's not the thing for you with this. I, I, I think food is so much more complicated at the end of the day, because like in sobriety, we practice abstinence and, uh, that's not what we're doing with food on any program, you know, but could you consider that there are certain, th certain areas, um, which you could recognize that lead you down a path that is not healthy with food that you would be willing to abstain from? I, I would think about it almost in that way, more so than in literal terms, right? I cannot drink alcohol because it ruins my life. So I just don't drink alcohol, um, which I think is far easier said than done, right? There's a lot of work that goes into that. But at the end of the day, I am fighting that thing, which is, which I, I, I know where it leads. And now I have to, I have to also recognize that like going to a bar with my friends could make that more difficult. Certain social situations could make that more difficult. Um, even, sitting alone in my house for too long uh, could make that more difficult and adjust my life accordingly in that way. Could you apply those principles um, to your issues with food? That that's what I would, that's what I would look at. Yeah. I don't, I don't have like a, a an easy one word solution like keto or OA for food. For me, it was really took a long time to, um, you know, with sobriety 
And though I failed that at a number of times, it was like, okay, on day one, I am just being sober. And then it was like on day two, maybe I'm going to start to make adjustments to my life to make sobriety easier. And years later, I wake up and it's like my life is completely different. And and that is a, a very similar thing with getting my my, uh, my, my relationship with food under control. It's, you know, figuring out a plan that I, that I believe I can stick to, or, you know, a long-term plan. And then it's just day one, I'm on my plan. And day two, I'm recognizing all the near failures I had on day one and trying to beatrice myself up better against them and create a more solid foundation so that, you know, 15 years later for me dealing with food, my life is completely unrecognizable in, in those terms, but it, t- it, it took a long time to figure it all out. Um, I think that persistence is important and resilience is important. And, you know, as a sober person with nine years sobriety, I'm sure you've, you've either experienced going out yourself or seeing people go out and come back in and the shame associated with that can be detrimental to getting back on a program. And so you got to give yourself that too, you know, the, the ability to get back into it um, when you fall off. That makes a lot of sense. Amr, let us know how it goes. And thank you so much for your question. If anyone else has a question that they would like Ethan to answer, you can email it to us at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.